Awesome. So, a lot to do this time of year. And uh, how about a hand to Andy and Jeremy and our video team for making these awesome videos? Eh? Getting better and better. Um, well, good morning. I just want to keep worshiping, to be honest with you. That was such a sweet time. Um, this morning, we are going to be back in our, our study in the book of Hebrews. I need to just tell you guys up front, uh, just, I don't have jokes this time, so uh, I saw people sleep in first service. You're just going to have to put in your mind right now, you know, college, going to school, taking notes, just preparing your mind, because uh, it's not going to be very entertaining today, um, but but this is an important, important message and a very important part of the Word of God, um, and that's what really what we're here for. And so we're going to feed on that today. <clears throat> Excuse me, Hebrews chapter two. Turn uh, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses one through thirteen. And if you could stand with me um, as we read God's Word together. I'll read the odd-numbered verses, if you would read together on the even-numbered verses as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The author starts, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. For he has put, excuse me, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For both he who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We've been looking at this 
really this presentation from the author of Hebrews uh, right off the bat to an audience who, of, of Jewish believers, uh, people who came out of the religion of Judaism, the old covenant system of sacrifice, the law of Moses, found their Messiah and their freedom and the fulfillment of all those things in Christ, who were being tempted to draw back into the old system of that old covenant faith, being tempted by the persecutions and trials they were undergoing now that they were following Jesus. And the author wants to give them such a clear picture of who Jesus is and what he's done that they could never look at anything else and say, I'd rather have that. And that's what happens when you see Jesus for who he is. When you get a clear vision in your life of Christ and his majesty and his transcendent glory and then his humility and the cross and his sacrifice and the power it takes to overcome death, when you see all that and that he wants to walk with us today and live within us today and use us today, you can't look at anything else and say, oh, I'd rather have that than Jesus. It's only him. And so last week in in chapter one, he really starts to say, Jesus has a better voice than the prophets. Yes, God used the prophets to speak and puzzle pieces, but Jesus is the one who brings it all together, brings clarity to, to the perfect will of God for humanity. It's the person of Jesus. If you're having trouble figuring out what life's about, having trouble figuring out why you're here, having trouble figuring out what's next after you die, and which you will, then look no further to the person of Jesus because it's in him, his life, his death, his resurrection, resurrection, his teaching, the gospel, the word of God, that communicates everything that we need to know about God and about ourselves and about eternity. And Jesus is better voice than the prophets. And we also saw last week that he is better than the angels, that Jesus isn't some mid-level creation of God, you know, where God created the earth and the heavens and the animals, and then he created man in his own image. And, then he, and, and before that, uh, prior to that, he had the angels, which were in that mediary place. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is in there somewhere. No, the author says Jesus is not created. He's not one of the angels. He himself is the creator come down to earth. And so as he now comes into chapter 2, he continues his presentation of this person of Jesus Again, chapter 1, focusing on his divinity, his majesty as creator. In chapter 2, he really hones in on Jesus' humanity, that Jesus came as a man for a specific reason, which is pretty intense as we look into it. But if you're taking notes, jot down the title of this morning's message, um, that Jesus is the better man. Jesus is the better man. George Strait once put out a country song entitled, uh, A Bigger Man Than Me. I don't know if there's any country fans in here. And as, as with most, most country songs, the song is about the woes of, of losing a woman and being lonely. So he writes a song, and in the chorus, it says, It takes a mighty man to live with lonesome. Some big men might live with misery. But there's one thing I know for sure, it's certain. It's for sure it's going to take a lot bigger man than me. So I'm not man enough to handle this loneliness. Well, Jesus, regarding our salvation, we need to get us back to God, a better man than us. Or maybe I'll date myself here. I don't know if there's anyone my age, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the way Pearl Jam put it. <laughs> Can't find a better man. Anyway. <laughs> but regarding our salvation, seriously, think about this. The Bible's very clear about the state that we're born into. 
And then through our actions and our thoughts and our words, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are incapable of doing any righteous acts or providing any sacrifice that will clean our slate of wickedness and rebellion and disloyalty that we have against God. And the dilemma was that because sin entered the world, through a man, Adam, the Bible says in the book of Romans, that the only way for sin to be rectified or dealt with is through a man. This is why Jesus had to come in the flesh. You see, there's, there's a lot of prophetic reasons why Jesus had to come in the flesh. God had to come in the flesh to fulfill his promise to David that a descendant of David in the flesh would rule and reign on the throne of David forever and ever. God had to come in the flesh because we're told in the Bible that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the only way that uh, sin can be perfectly forgiven is to have a perfect sacrifice. And therefore, God, the perfect one, had to come in the flesh to give himself as the sacrifice for sin. But also, God had to come in the flesh to reverse the curse that the first man brought into the world. That death, that sin entered through Adam's sin and death reigned through sin, and death is still a part of our reality today. And so a second Adam had to come, the perfect Adam that would do what Adam couldn't do and live righteous and make things right between God and man through his perfect life. And so we're going to look at just a few things here about Jesus being the better man as we move through the, the chapter today. If you're taking notes, jot down our first point, is that the better man, Jesus, appeals to us to follow him. The better man, Jesus, appeals to us to follow him, to trust in him, and to believe in him. The chapter starts out with a stern yet important warning. He says, therefore, and again last week, because Jesus speaks better than the prophets, because he has a better title and authority than the angels, therefore, we, that is us, believers, must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We talked about this last week, that the natural human progression and direction is never towards God. It's always away from God. I would argue that even people who are on a spiritual journey or they're religious or they want some sort of uh, spiritual experience in their life are not naturally seeking the, the true experience of God. They are moving in their own direction. They are drifting away. And the, the, the nature of our flesh is constantly seeking another direction than Christ, which is why Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that the hope we have in Jesus is like an anchor for our soul, sure and steadfast. It, it brings us back and grounds us in the truth and reality. I could put it like this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the anchor that keeps us from drifting on the world's course towards destruction. The word drift comes from a nautical term in the Greek, which referred to a ship that has lost its mooring. It's lost its anchor. It's being tossed every direction by whatever breeze comes and whatever wave, uh, whatever wave direction comes. And it will never ever meet or, or uh, arrive to its intended destination because it's constantly going off course. The word also implies a slow drifting, a slow progression away, almost like a memory that is so clear in the moment, but when you don't think about it for a long time, it becomes faded, and then details start to slip, and it just becomes a distant memory. 
And I don't want to diminish the weight of the warning here. It seems clear to me, and this happened several other times in Hebrews, that, the, that there is a risk ever present that if one does not take earnest heed, prioritize, make effort to put Jesus constantly before them, the only other option is that they will slowly harden their hearts and drift away from the truth. Now, I am not suggesting that our salvation depends on our works. No, the Bible's clear. By no works of the law shall any flesh be justified. But our salvation does depend on whether or not we trust in Jesus. We keep him at that he is our salvation, that we don't turn to other things to try to add to what he's done. As moving back to the sacrificial system of Judaism would do to these believers. But it is a stern warning. In fact, uh, 19th century expositor John Brown, he sets forth the following imagery from this passage. He says, The Christian is embarked in his little vessel on the stream of life. And he is bound to the new Jerusalem. The winds of temptation, the tides of corrupt customs, the powerful undercurrent of depraved inclination, all present such obstacles in the way of his reaching the desired haven that he is in great apparent hazard of being carried past the celestial city and of making shipwreck on the shores of the land of destruction. And then the author tells us in verse 2 through 4 why this is so essential that we heed the voice of Christ. Verse 2 tells us, For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And so he, here he puts forth a reason why it's so serious. He says, because the law, which last week we learned, was uh, mediated through the angels. The angels brought forth between God and Moses the law some, somehow in that, that, how that thing works. If the law that was brought forth through angels held such a standard that whoever disobeyed it or ignored it received a just reward, namely death, then how shall we escape if we are neglecting a greater salvation than what, the, than what the law brought? The law brought the knowledge of sin. Jesus brings the forgiveness of sin. We should all be glad we're not under the law. We should all be glad we can enjoy a you know, good pork roast and, and, and great... I'm going off course here, but the point is, there was a strict judgment... The law was steadfast. Every transgression was punished. And how shall we neglect if we, uh, excuse me, how shall we escape? Escape what? Well, the, the, the implication is judgment. How shall we escape the consequences of ignoring the gospel if we neglect our salvation? The word neglect is more than just an outright rejection. It means to make light of. It means to dismiss or to take for granted or devalue. You see, when one starts ignoring the implications and the commands of the gospel in their life and the voice of Jesus, they lay aside and replace his voice with other voices, a slow drift happens in the human heart until they have hardened their hearts 
to faithlessness. When I think about neglect, you know, neglect is something that we all can be fairly good at. And I believe that neglect is, is always fueled by passivity. And when I talk about passivity, I mean to be without an active response. You, you, you see something that needs to be done, you see something you should take heed to, but, it's, but you naturally take the more convenient or, or seemingly easier course. And you don't want to deal with something because it's easier to avoid it. The problem is that that's called neglect. I mean, if you neglect your marriage, if you neglect dealing with the hard stuff because it's inconvenient, you don't want to stir the part, and you, you just stop dealing with the issues as they come up, and they start building bitterness in your heart, and pretty soon the intimacy starts to disconnect, and pretty soon you have two people who are married on paper, but they don't seem to be connected in any way to each other. How did that drift happen? How did that separation happen? Well, it's neglect. It's passivity. There's no point. It's hopeless. I'm just going to give up. I mean, try this on your car with the oil for a few years if you want to figure out that, that, that neglect always leads to destruction, to damage. Well, it's the same way with our relationship with God. Neglect always has detrimental consequences. Neglecting Christ, neglecting obedience to his gospel, neglecting the faith, all of these could potentially lead to the rejection of saving faith altogether. So here, if some of you theologians are tracking with me, you're recognizing that we are approaching a source of conflict of interpretation that has been permeating the church for thousands of years. It makes the reader uncomfortable because we have to ask this question. Who is the author talking to when he says, we, if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, there's three options. Number one, he's talking to those who say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. That seems to make sense, considering that several times in the book he calls them brothers. He, he addresses them as those who have tasted of Christ, who have partaken of him. He says we. Well, the second option is there's maybe a we in, in those who think they know God, but have no fruit or evidence of true faith. Uh, they're, they're a Christian because their mom was a Christian, and they're brother's a Christian, and their friend's a Christian, and they have their name on a membership at a church. So they're a Christian. And, and, and he's saying, just because you're associated by title with Jesus doesn't mean that you are heeding his gospel, that you have trusted and put your faith in him. Or the third option is he's taking an evangelistic turn, that he's saying, we as in the whole world, that anyone who comes across and hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and they neglect it, they're in big trouble. Which one is it? I'm not going to pretend to know. But here's what I do know. If you are convicted by it, it most likely applies to you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying condemned by it. I'm not suggesting that uh, you, you made a mistake and you made a failure and then you hear this voice that say, no, look at you. You, 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 made a, you made a mistake, you're not really saved. No, that's not the voice of the Lord. That's the voice of the enemy. If you're trusting in Christ, he's, as far as the east is from the west, he's so far as he removed your sin from, from you and from him, from his presence. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, you know what? It's true, I've been playing games with Jesus I've known the steps I need to take. 
to give my life fully to him, but there are certain parts of my life I don't want him to have. And I, and I just want to fit him into my little box where I'm comfortable with, with, the, with how much of my life he gets and just enough religion to make me feel comfortable about my spirituality. But when it comes to saying Jesus is Lord, he alone is my salvation, I can't do anything to add to that. Have you done that? Or are you drifting? Or have you drifted? Or are you outright neglecting the hope of Jesus as he presents it to you? One thing is clear. We must not ignore the gospel. Well, Josh, is it once saved, always saved? Are you saying you can lose your salvation? Um, Listen, I'm not that smart. Here's what I know. Whatever it is, I don't want it to be me. Which means I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. He takes this theme all the way to chapter 12 where he says, therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Don't lose sight of Christ. And I say that sternly because I'm warning you. The Bible is clear even if I don't fully understand it or can't clearly communicate it. The Bible is clear. It warns us to move away from Jesus can have dire consequences. David Guzik put it like this in his commentary. He said, a greater word brought by a greater person having greater promises will bring a greater condemnation if it is neglected. Next, the author demonstrates how God validates the gospel. Some might hear, well, I I don't believe that Jesus thing anyway. Well, there's plenty of evidence to the contrary of why we should believe it. The author says in verse 3, regarding this great salvation that we cannot neglect, which at the first, he says, began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Notice he says that the, the gospel, salvation in Christ has been verified by three ways. First, it was spoken of by Jesus himself. God come down in human flesh, communicating to us his plan of salvation. Jesus began to speak the gospel. What did he say? Well, you know John 3, 16. Jesus is the one who said it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And this is the condemnation, that light has entered into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. And then he goes on to say, and and for those who, who believe in the name of the Son of God, they will be saved. They will not be condemned. But those who do not believe in the name of the Son of God are condemned already. Jesus spoke it. He gave us the simplicity of what he was about, the gospel. And then secondly, it was confirmed by firsthand witnesses, namely the apostles, the disciples, They saw, they bore witness to his miracles. They bore witness to his truth. They bore witness to his death on the cross. And they bore witness to his resurrection. After Jesus rose again for 40 days, the Bible tells us he spent in and out with with various witnesses and various people revealing himself to them undeniably that he was alive forevermore. And his disciples ultimately saw him ascend to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. I mean, think about that as an historical fact that you have 12 disciples, one hung himself, the other one died in the island of Patmos, 
uh, after being attempted to be martyred and, and wasn't successful, and every other disciple was martyred. That, that means they willingly gave their life for what? An invented story so that they could save face? A lie? A hallucination? No. Because they couldn't deny what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, what they touched, to the point of seeing Jesus ascend in heaven, really realizing he's it. There's nothing else to live for. There's nothing better to die for because he's real. And Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe in that same way. For we might not have seen and touched with our physical eyes and hands, but have you not been touched by the Lord? Have you not seen his faithfulness in your life when you thought things were at the end and you didn't understand what was going on and then you look back and you saw through every trial and every pain and every difficulty, he faithfully led me. He was always there. I'm stronger because of it and his promises are true. We know we have testified to his reality. And of course then it was also confirmed by the Father who gave, we're told, witness with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So not only were the disciples testifying of the risen Jesus, not only did Jesus give us the words of the gospel, but God the Father poured out his Holy Spirit in his church. The dead were being raised. The lame were walking. The blind were seen. People were being healed. Everything was happening, all pointing to the fact that Jesus is still alive and in the person of the Holy Spirit, he was working in the world. But I want you to notice something, a little bit of a rabbit trail at the end there of verse 4. When he says, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it says, according to his own will. I think this is important because the Holy Spirit is not a spell that we conjure up. Amen. You know? It's not something where we all sing and we get goosebumps and, and then, you know, then I come up and just conjure up the, the, the Spirit. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to push the Holy Spirit on you, you know, I'm just, I'm going to wield him like he's my lightsaber, you know, or something like that, that he's the force. No, God distributes the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the miracles and the signs and wonders according to his own will to testify to the reality that Jesus is alive. So he's doing here, the language really indicates the author is building like a legal courtroom case as to why the message of this great salvation of Jesus should be trusted and not neglected. So Jesus, the better man, he appeals to us, don't neglect this salvation. But number two, we see that the better man, Jesus, achieved for us what we could not achieve for ourselves. The better man, Jesus, achieved for us what we could not achieve for ourselves. Next, uh, the author quotes Psalm chapter 8 to build a case for why humanity is broken and why Jesus is the answer. Look at verse 5. This is so cool. For he, that is the Father, God, he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to the angels. So he's making an eschatological statement about the future, the new heaven, new earth, the everlasting kingdom of God that's coming. God is not giving authority to that heaven and that earth to the angels. 
Okay, he, he spent talking about Jesus is better than the angels. So, verse 6, he quotes a psalm. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him, that is man, a little lower than the angels in form and structure. Angels are spiritual beings. We are physical beings. Angels are more powerful beings. Or in the presence of God, we, we have a, a, a weaker frame. Okay, he says, you have made him a little lower than the angels, yet you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the work of your hands. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we yet do not see all things put under him. You got all, you got over, under, up, above, everything. You guys, you guys good? Okay. Let's, let's, but let's, let's, let's think about this. This is very powerful. Why is the author talking about this? He looks at the angels. He looks at Jesus. He looks at the creation. David. He's laying in the field with his sheep. He's got his little harp. He's writing a song to the Lord. He's there by himself. No man-made light at that time to disrupt the view of the Milky Way galaxy and and the stars, and all of a sudden, as David is thinking about the hand that just put this all together, having no scientific understanding of it like, like we have today, a thought just hits him, I need to write a song. And he starts, what is man, myself, he's thinking, in, in the scope of a vast array of creation, what is man that you are mindful of him, and, and the son of man that you would take care of him? And, and then he... he like every songwriter, if you're a songwriter, you know, you know what I mean? You, you start to write, and then you're like, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And then, and then you just, you, you're on a roll. And so he gets on a roll, and, and God, of all your magnificent wonders, uh, why would you consider me and, and take care of me? I mean, there's the angels, and they're so glorious in their creation, and yet you've, you've taken, you've crowned me with glory and with honor, and you've put, a, you put creation in subjection uh, to man, thinking of Adam and Eve and, and the subjection of creation, um, and then he gets carried away a little bit. And he says, notice, and here's where the author points it out. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Notice that in verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And the author of Hebrews stops. He says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We have a problem here. Perhaps you've noticed uh, that there's not all things in subjection to mankind. I mean, did, did, did the last hurricane ask our permission? Did it, did it, did it phone call up the, the governor of Florida and say, hey, you, you mind if I come through? Did the volcanoes that explode ask permission of the towns that are about to just, the lava's about to destroy and run over before they blow up? I don't know what it was like in Missouri, but as a kid in, in California, I would go to the ponds and we'd feed the ducks you know, and what's that one thing you always dreaded seeing? That, that nasty goose who just was going to chase you and <laughs> terrorize you. And, and what did you do when, that, when you saw that goose and, and start running towards you? You ran away. You didn't turn around and said, oh, I'm a son of Adam, therefore be subject to me, you goose, you know. <laughs> Why? Because the goose isn't going to listen to you. 
You see, that, that's, that's a relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with creation. When God said, have dominion over everything, I believe that fully God's creation was subject to Adam and Eve. And then when they rebelled against God and sin entered in the world, everything got wacky. Everything started to descend and, and explode into chaos. Nothing worked as it should, which is why Paul would say in Romans, even the creation groans, awaiting the revelation of the sons of men. Right? The hurricanes, the natural disasters, everything that's the, that, that it seems like there's an order to the universe. Things should be right, but they're not. There's death, there's destruction, there's chaos between nature and between man. It's all because sin came and ruined that relationship of authority that God gave to man over his creation. And so the author of Hebrews says, wait a minute. We, you, we do not see everything in subjection under his feet. The feet of mankind. The authority of mankind. We don't see that. Well, then, then what do we see? Look at the first four words of verse 9. But we see Jesus. In other words, he's saying that psalm, Psalm 8, that talks about man and God's intentional plan for mankind to rule over, to have authority over his creation, and they failed because of sin. But we see Jesus. Jesus is the better man. The perfect man. Where we went astray, he went right. When we look at the storm and say, stop storm, and it doesn't listen to us, but it floods our house, Jesus looks at the storm and says, peace, be still. And it stops. Where we look at the cancer and say, go away, cancer, I don't want you right now, and it persists to grow inside of our bodies, Jesus looks at the cancer and says, be gone, and it's gone. When we look at death and see a final destination that we have, as humanity, have been trying and trying to find, our, find a way out of through all of our technology and through all of our medical science and through everything, just to avoid and somehow prolong our life and get out of this thing of death, and we speak to death and say, death, be no more, and it doesn't listen to us, and then Jesus walks into a grave. Three days later, he says, death, that's enough, and he gets up and he walks out. We see chaos, but we see Jesus. We see confusion, but we see Jesus. We see death, but we see Jesus. We see wickedness, but we see Jesus. And this whole world without Jesus is trying to say, we see all those things too. And we see politicians, and we see government, and we see science, and all these th ways that they're trying to find some solution, some answer, some way to be better than all of the problems that we've created, and all we need to do is see Jesus. Amen. He's repaired it all. He is the repairer. He is the one in authority. He is the one, the Bible says, is coming back to bring the perfect heaven and the perfect earth and at that point in time, all those who trust in him will enter into the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. There is coming a time for you, if you trust in Jesus, where you will fulfill that prophecy with him. Why? Because he did it first. He paved the way. 
for all people, if they would choose, to come back to, to who God originally created them to be in eternity. That's why we can't neglect this. Humanity is not the answer to humanity's problems. Humanity created humanity's problems. We are not the answer. We created the problem. Jesus is the answer, and Christ in us, the hope of glory, that brings the solution to the problems. But we see Jesus, he says, who was made a little lower than the angels. That's his humility. And for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus... Well, let me, let me explain the Bible with the Bible. Here he says he was made a little lower than the, than the angels. And of course, that definition is now used based on the previous context of human beings, that Jesus became a human being, a little lower than the angels. Though he was the divine glory in heaven, he willingly subjected himself to human weakness, to frailty. Philippians chapter 2 puts it like this in verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, that's the very essence of his nature, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That is, he didn't, he didn't view divinity as something to be grasped because he already had it. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a men, man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Notice that the, the sort of the pinnacle of Jesus' humanity was ultimately his suffering. This is important. Notice the author in Hebrews uses a unique title, unique in the entire New Testament, for Jesus. He calls him the, cap, the captain of our salvation. You know that ship that tends to drift needs a captain, <laughs> and Jesus makes a good captain. But also the word means trailblazer. The one who paved the way. Jesus, through his suffering and his death on the cross, paved a way for all humanity to follow in the path of salvation. You might call it pioneer. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. And how did he do it? Verse 10 tells us that he was made perfect through suffering. Now, I want you to note something because this is important. When it says that the Father God made Jesus perfect through suffering, it's not to indicate that Jesus had some moral imperfection that had to be fixed. You, you following me? It's not that, that Jesus was not perfect, and so God's like, well, Jesus, you need to suffer so that you can be perfect. That's not what the passage is saying. The word perfect means complete. What, what he's talking about is that Jesus, through suffering, completed the work of salvation. He made... The, this, this great salvation that we have, perfect and complete through his suffering, through his suffering on the cross. And if Christ suffered for us, he has prepared us 
for when we might have to suffer for his sake. He suffered for our sins and our salvation, but we might have to suffer for the sake of his name and his truth. But notice, Jesus didn't do this for his own sake. This is important in the language. It's the captain of our salvation, made perfect in suffering. Jesus didn't suffer and die on a cross in misery because he needed forgiveness. You understand that. Jesus suffered because we needed forgiveness. Jesus suffered because we couldn't be the better man. It was not within us, within the scope of possibility for us. Think of it like this. When I was in high school, uh, I was a swimmer, competitive swimmer. And I was a pretty decent swimmer. Fast for my league, uh, won a lot of meets, got a lot of medals, so on and so forth. But my level of ability only reached a certain point. I couldn't, if I were to go uh, try out for the Olympic trials, I would look like a fool. I, I mean, that's how much slower I was. Even though I was faster than most people in my age group and in my circle, I was appelled in comparison to people who were in the Olympics. So imagine I get a call to show up for the Olympic trials swimming. I, I show up at my block kind of feeling overwhelmed and insufficient, and there's Michael Phelps, Phelps, the, the winner of 28, most decor, decorated Olympic ath athlete, at my block, standing there. And he looks at me and says, I got this. Okay. And I watch him wear himself out and give his all and win my race. And then I, go to, then I go to the Olympics. And as I get ready to go in my block for the Olympics, there's Michael Phelps again. And he says, I got this. And he swims my race, and he gets exhausted, and he gives his all, and he burns himself out, and he finishes in first place. And then I go to the podium, and there's Michael Phelps. And he puts the gold medal around my neck and has me stand at the top. I think, that's not fair. That's, that's pretty silly. I, I would hate an Olympics if it was like that. Well, maybe so. But aren't you kind of glad that God, who wrote the rule book of salvation, that one must be absolutely perfect to obtain it, and knew that you and I could never obtain it, also wrote into that same rule book that he would come down, run the race for us, die the death for us, conquer death for us, and at the end of the day, give us the medal and say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Jesus did this for us. Third and final point he brings home in verses 11 through 13. Not only does a better man appeal to us to trust him, not only does um, he do that second thing that I can't remember I just told you about. Um, test. What's the second thing? He achieved for us what we can't achieve for ourselves. Number three, and this one blows my mind, is a better man Jesus associates himself with us. He associates himself with us. Look at verses 11 through 13. We'll close here. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one. That is, we've all entered into the same family. For which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. 
in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That, that Jesus, I know this is a, another tangent, but Jesus worshipped the Father with the disciples. Think about that. They would sing. Jesus sang. If you're wondering, like, I don't sing in church because Jesus never sang. I've never heard anyone say that. But just for your information, Jesus did sing. And so that means you need to sing too. Where was I? Uh, okay. But Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not simply making myself one of you. I am making myself one with you. I'm, letting, I'm becoming united with you in familial relationship. That's incredible to me. Jesus does not merely place himself above us as our king. He places himself alongside of us as our brother. This is one of the most mystifying statements in the book to me. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Quoting from the Psalms and from Isaiah. That Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brethren. I want you to repeat something with me that very well could change the course of someone in this room today. And I wouldn't ask you to repeat it if I didn't believe with my whole heart that it's biblically true and accurate. So repeat this with me. Jesus is not ashamed of me. Someone needs to hear that this morning. Because you're trusting in Jesus, you believe in him, you know that he's your salvation, you've trusted in the gospel, but either your past is something shameful to look at or your present holds some mistakes and failures that you're ashamed of, and you think that, that God feels the same way as you do about yourself. And that's not true. If Jesus went to the cross to the, to the extent of humbling himself, becoming a man, carrying the sin of the world, bearing the sinner's cross, just to get you into the family... He doesn't eject you as soon as you make a, a mistake, which is pretty much expected of all of us to make. He doesn't reject you because you're struggling against the flesh and you're battling against the flesh, the tendencies towards this thought or that thought or this action, and you're doing battle and you're trying hard and you're fighting it. He's fighting with you. He's fighting for you, and he's not ashamed to call you his brethren. Now, don't hear me if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh, phew, that's good, uh, I guess I can go send it up, then I have a far greater warning to you. Maybe you're not saved at all. So don't hear me wrong. If you're thinking more about how much you can sin and how close you can get to the line without messing up, then you have a bigger question, and that is, do you even know Jesus? But if you know Jesus and you're in the fight and you're just ashamed of who you are, you're ashamed of what you become, I haven't achieved what I wanted in this life, I can't seem to do anything right, uh, hey, God's got your back. And when God sees you, he doesn't see the failures and the mistakes and the humanness. He sees what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. And I believe that is true. And when we see ourselves that way, it's not about seeing ourselves. Yeah, I am pretty good and... I do have some of God in me. No, you don't. You're a wretch. You're a failure. All the things you hear about you are true. And Jesus still said, I am not ashamed to call you my brethren. He came to be with us, not just to die for us.
Charles Spurgeon said it like this, some things are valued by you as keepsakes given by one that you love. And so we are dear to Christ because his father has given us to him. We are his, his treasure. He sees us that way in Christ. Not in us, but in Christ. I can think of some people I wouldn't really want to be seen in public with. I can think of some people that probably wouldn't really want to be seen with me in public. But Jesus is not ashamed to be seen with anyone who calls him Lord. In Matthew 10, he said, Whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. And this point, as I close, brings a a great sense of conviction to my heart. As I meditate on this truth about how Jesus feels about me, it should not surprise me that that I would want to associate with Jesus. It does surprise me that he wants to associate with me. But then it convicts me because Jesus in front of his Father in heaven, we're talking about perfect, pure holiness, is not ashamed to present me blameless. This is mine. This is mine. My sheep, my son, all my, all my stuff. He's, and yet when I take Jesus and I take him out into the world, how, how is it that I can be so easily ashamed of him? Oh, it's easy to be associated with Jesus when I'm sitting in church. Everyone thinks the same way I do. Everyone feels the same way I do. What about when standing up for Jesus and everything that he represents is going to divide the relationship you have with your daughter or your neighbor or is going to keep you from that promotion at work or is going to keep you out of the circle of influence that you've been fighting so hard to gain the approval of these certain people, and if they find out I follow Jesus and I'm, I believe these, these truths about life and about morality and about, you know, I just don't want to stir the pot. And Jesus stands before his Father and says, all day I'm with him. He's with me. We all know this story of the cross where the book of Isaiah tells us that he bore our shame upon himself, that we all like sheep have gone astray, we've all each gone our own way, but he has put upon him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And I, I believe that, well, there's multiple reasons why Jesus came at the time and the place and the culture he did. The Bible calls it the fullness of time. But one of the reasons I believe Jesus came when and where he did is because to this very day, it's been said that crucifixion is one of the most inhumane, torturous deaths ever execute, methods of execution ever created by man. Not only because of its physical realities, and pain and suffering involved with the, how you die. But because in an in a, in a Eastern culture where honor was everything, 
crucifixion was the most shameful way you could die. You've all seen movies of pictures, you know, Jesus hangs up on the cross and he's like 20 feet above everyone. That's not the reality. The cross was put at eye level so that people who walk by the street and you're hanging there could look you in the eye, spit in your face, tear up your clothes, and mock you. Why? Because alongside the suffering you're going through physically, the point was how much can we shame you before you die? How much honor can we take away from you in front of everyone else, make you completely humiliated before you die? Which connects this, these dots for me. When Jesus bore my shame and he was there at eye level and he was being mocked and ridiculed and slapped and beaten and blood coming out and his nakedness was exposed and his beard torn up and his head pierced and the sign above his head that, was that, that caused those around him to even mock him and jeer at him even more. Son of God who had no iniquity in his heart, no deceit upon his lips, never did one thing outside the perfect will of God, morally, ethically, anything, was, Hebrews tells us, embracing the shame. Whose shame? His? No. <laughs> Yours. Mine. He took that shame for us. He was not ashamed. It blows my mind. And as we conclude this passage, it's, it's designed by the Holy Spirit to challenge each one of us, where is Jesus in your life? Is he the better man for you? Have you trusted in him completely? Are you believing and following him? Are the things in your life that he's asking for control over that you haven't surrendered yet? I don't know. You cannot agree with Jesus. You can choose to reject Jesus, but you can't ignore Jesus. He's there. And what you do with him is the most important decision that you and I make every single day. Amen. Why don't we pray together? Lord, this is a very complex piece of scripture, but it's so beautifully intertwined, this Old Testament preaching of the gospel that you came to be the better man, to be the one that we could not be. Lord, we lost control. And you have put all things in subjection under your feet, having conquered death itself. And so, Lord, where else do we have to turn? Who else are we going to go to? You alone hold the words of eternal life. Eternal life is in you. And so, Lord... If your voice is speaking to some here today, I pray that they would not harden their hearts, that they would not neglect or passively respond to the invitation of Jesus, but that each one of us, with all of our hearts, would say, Jesus, you're, you're it. You're the one that we want. We follow you. We trust in you. And if you don't know Christ today in that way, you can simply call out to him and confess him with your mouth, believe upon him in your heart, surrender your life to him, trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you, you can do that, you can come to Christ today.
and be assured of your place in heaven and in the family of God. In fact, I would say if you need to do that, I'm going to ask you to come pray with one of our pastors or elders up front here before you leave. Don't run out the door. Even if there's a, a little bit of a crowd, just get, make your way down here after service, and we want to pray with you to receive Christ into your life today. And so, Lord, we go out just with this uh, great knowledge that you have met us here today, you've spoken to us, and we confess that we're not strong enough to go out there and do this on our own. So fill us now with your Holy Spirit, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.